Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. Nobody has accused me of being not so big in height or personality for about 25 years, but I'm ready to get not so big with you. This is episode number 117. What up? Oh, I have an extra dose of energy and silly today. Yes, beyond my typical and normally abundant amounts. But I need you to know, in all seriousness and sincerity, thank you. I am so, so grateful you're listening to my first podcast episode of 2017 and last episode for a bit. Yeah, it's January 9, 2017 on the date I published this episode, and you may be raring to go on your big plans and projects for the year. Me? Yeah, I have projects. Projects aplenty. My Bush Your Beard project, by the way, is on autopilot right now, looking good, if I do say so myself. But other things require some uh, intentional and sustained attention. Uh, my main project for this year is for my work at an online community of multi-potentialites that I run called The Putty Tribe, and we need a new website like I need to walk on a frozen lake in wintertime. The translation, if you don't know my fetish for frozen lakes, we need a new website bad. And that's where I come in as the connections and operations officer for the Putty Tribe, the project manager, business analyst, testing coordinator, and many other octopus roles for the Putty Tribe new website and all kinds of other things. I am fulfilling my multi-potentiality in a big way for my fellow Putty Peep. And this will be my last planned episode until April 2017 because I need to focus on co-creating this awesome new site with my fellow multi-potentialites. It's got to get done right the first time. No margin for error. And when I'm building something, when I'm co-creating, yeah, I tend to like to go big but not in a way that my guest and I are going to talk about. Um, speaking of big, another big factor for this podcasting break. You know, I've been producing a new episode every other week for four and a half years without a break. And it just seemed like a good idea to take a pause. You know, to do some other things. See what life is like without the constant pressure of producing a new episode. So uh, I'm not really the type to go dormant in the wintertime, but I know that it may seem like I am dormant from a public-facing perspective, if you will. Just know that there are many more Smart and Simple Matters podcast episodes in me. I got nothing but love for you, and I will maybe even practice my singing during my break so I don't have to hurt your ears the next time I want to spontaneously bust into tune to some song made last century. Because are they still creating new music after the year 2000? If they are, I don't know about it. Today, 
Let us explore design. I'm talking about how to bring useful beauty to every room in your home. How to schedule your passions and carve out that time that never seems to come. How to have more real time in your life where you're 100% present. How to hit life's pause button, like I'm doing with this show for a little bit. And why you need to ask yourself, which me is speaking right now? I'll tell you, the podcasting me is speaking to you right now, but I am not alone here. I can't help you with most of the things I just mentioned, which is why I've been excited for months to bring you my guest for this episode who can absolutely help. Her name is Sarah Susanka, and she's big in not-so-big circles. You may actually know her from her popular not-so-big series of books, or you may be thinking, was Sarah, who's in the what's it now? Wherever your head is at, I would like you to put on your student hat and get ready to learn something. There is lots to take in on this one. Here we go. I'm more than a few years too late to have this chat in person with my guest, Sarah Susanka, who lived in the same Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area that I still live in and have lived in for many years. She has since moved on from the Twin Cities, and goodness, has she done little things that double as really big things. Sarah has become a best-selling author of books like The Not-So-Big House, a prominent public speaker, and has too many awards to name for her work as an architect. Maybe you've heard her name or seen her on Oprah or Charlie Rose a while back. If not, perhaps she sounds familiar as a source of inspiration for a generation of people who now know that their sense of home is much more about quality than it is quantity. Welcome to Smart and Simple Matters, Sarah. I'm thrilled to have a chat with you today. Well, thank you so much, Joel. It's great to be here. I would like to start our conversation where I normally start a conversation, which is with something I call the seeds of awesomeness. I would really like to help people understand how you came to be the person that you are today. So if you would, could you tell us something unique about your environment as a youth or maybe an experience that really stands out in your mind that still has an impact on you to this day? Oh, absolutely. Well, the the biggest thing that happened to me growing up was that I lived in England until I was 14 years old, and my family emigrated from England to the U.S., and I moved from a village of about a 1,000 people to, as I put it, a high school in Los Angeles that was three times the size of my village. So <laughs> I didn't know that there were that many adolescents in the world, let alone in one school. <laughs> And to put it mildly, it was a massive, massive culture shift. It was, it, it was one of those um, experiences that anybody who has moved cultures probably has some familiarity with. But in a way, it's like a mystical experience because you nothing is familiar. Even though we theoretically speak the same language, I really didn't. I really didn't know how to to communicate in the way that uh, Americans did, and oftentimes I misunderstood things. And I, you know, I was fourteen, so I felt really geeky. I felt like, you know, I wished I could be like everybody else, and I wasn't. And it was just a completely overwhelming experience. But what it allowed, which I could not have imagined at that age, is that it 
it taught me that everything is flexible and that this world we live in will sort of morph to what you want. And I could see that happening in my teenage years. I could see that what I put my focus on started to um, inform my daily life. And, you know, I loved writing when I was um, in high school. I'd always loved writing, but I didn't think of it as a, something that I could do uh, to make a living. And I suddenly realized, you know, I can write and and explore what I'm interested in and have that be a focus of my of my world. And so when I was very young, I was 15 years old, I actually wrote my first book. Never got published, of course, but it really inspired me. And I realized that when I just let go and start writing, you know, my heart pours out onto the pages. And so I knew from a very early age that that's what I wanted to do. Doesn't mean that it happened fully fledged until much later in my life, but I could tell that... If you focus on what you want, it will happen. And that's, that was the lesson. That well, I what were you focusing about when you wrote as a well, teenager? Was there a topic or two in particular, or was it just freeform? It, it wasn't freeform. It, there was a topic. And as I look back now with my adult eyes, I can see that I was trying to make sense of this massive culture change. The first book that I wrote was actually a science fiction story about um, a, a young person who, in my, in my story, had epilepsy. And when he appeared to have epilepsy in, in this world, he was actually moving to a completely different universe in the future. And so his, what, what on one, one level was appeared to be seizures, uh, in another world was his entire life in a different body, with different places, different friends, different technologies. And interestingly, here I am, this was, uh, it would have been 1972, I was writing this. One of the characters in this book had in his pocket what we would now call a smartphone. Oh. And I, I described it in the book as, you know, he could take this device out of his pocket and he could look up anything he wanted to and he had access to it. So, you know, I think as kids we have almost like a prescience about what's coming. I didn't have any way of knowing about the internet, obviously, at that point, but we have, when we just sort of let go of what we think we know and just allow our imaginations to roam, we, we actually can sort of, I mean, in a way, see into the future just because it's our collective imaginings that come into being. And so I was just letting go and imagining, and that's, you know, what, what was imagined does come into being. And I think if we were to interview a lot of 15-year-olds today, they would be telling us a lot of the things that will be coming that we, who are older, don't think of. So 44 years later, yes, the smartphone exists. Uh, mm -hmm. Billions of people have one, and right. your vision has become a reality, or at least the, the rough right. way that you conceptualized it at the time as a youth. Right. What were some of the things that you wrote about in terms of how you anticipated the future to be that were just wildly off from the world that you have lived in or currently live in? Does anything well, stand it out? Was more, um, it was more space age than, than has happened. You know, so I had actually designed the way that the community that this kid moved to 
would would look like and it was it was very egalitarian in a certain way everybody lived in the same kind of pod uh, that was part of a larger uh, a larger space um and it, it was it was very utopian in a certain way and that there was very little um, strife so you know in that respect it's way off base <laughs> But was this the but, world that you wanted to inhabit? I this suppose, is the world you wanted to grow into. This kind of utopian, I did. yeah, yeah, right, right. But it, the the story was really about what's it like to be in a completely different body and in a completely different time where you don't know the rules. Which, of course, in a way, was what I was experiencing—a a completely different world where I didn't know the rules. So it, you know, I can see looking back, but the imagining was in part colored by what I was experiencing at the time. And in part was just, a, you know, what would it be like to be in, in a different body that had different capacities? And, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of an intriguing question. Well, based on your current stature, there may be a publisher out there who's interested to put that into print. <laughs> or you could do it yourself, this world of self-publishing that we live in. No one needs permission you know, to publish a book. I'll one thing that I've been playing with, and this is a book that is going to be probably years in the making. But when I was that age, I wrote a lot. So I have boxes and boxes of my teenage writings. And they're actually pretty cool. So I've thought of writing a book with myself, a self in the future that's writing with a self in the past. And I think that would be cool. Hmm. I'm fascinated. Doesn't it sound interesting? Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, all those ideas. And I used to... I used to have a conversation with myself in the future. So I'd write to myself and ask myself questions. You know, here's what I think about such and such. What do you think about them? You know, and so it's like a time machine. Hmm. I, I kind of invented a time machine without knowing it. <laughs> I think I would read that. Well, what happened? Yeah. So you are, you, you have to write. You're compelled to write as a teenager. And then right. later on, as you start learning more and you get into professional work, that just seems to drift away for an extended period of time. Yeah, How did definitely. life speed up to the point where you just dropped that aspect, which was so vitally important to you for so long? Right, right. Well, it's interesting, and I think we all go through this. There's uh, this issue about making money. And although I have a feeling if I could wind back time and stayed with the courage of my own convictions, I could have been a writer right, right out of the starting gates. My parents thought that was a really bad idea because they all, you know, starving artists. Yeah, I'm, I'm starving writer, you know, so they wanted me very much to uh, utilize some of the other capacities I had. And, um, and so I ended up going into architecture, in part because I also, I mean, I just described how I designed the place that these uh, people were living in the future. Um, design was as much a part of my passion as writing. Um, but I didn't know how to, how to, you know, be an architect yet. So I had to go to school and, and then that world sort of became my, the focus of my energies. And I tend to when I am doing something, I tend to do it whole hog. And so for the next really 20 years, architecture became my focus primarily. And on and off, I would write articles and um, I loved explaining in what I call normal people speak, (laughs) 
what architects do. I wanted people to, of you know, average means to, to learn how to make their houses better. And so I, first of all, did some of that description through public speaking, and then also um, in some degree th- to, through writing. And I actually wrote um, a couple of articles for a magazine called Fine Home Building, which some of your listeners may know about. And the editor from Fine Home Building read one of those articles and said, you know, we, we would love to work with you um, to, to develop a book. And I thought that sounded cool, but at the time I was incredibly busy being an architect and I couldn't imagine how that would happen. So I sort of put the idea on the back burner. And then at some point, and I described this in a book that I believe you've read, um, The Not-So-Big Life, Yeah, I describe in the introduction that I was lying in bed one night reading science fiction, as it turns out, um, just to try to sort of change the pace of the day so that I could calm down enough to go to sleep. And I had one of those moments of epiphany, and I, I don't know if any of your listeners have had something like this, but it was as though literally somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said in my ear, you know, if you don't make a change in your life, you're never going to have time to write. And it's literally like it came out from out of left field. And I I suddenly realized, yeah, what I want to do is write, but I don't have any time in my life to write. How the heck is this going to work? And the moment that this thought came up, I was really absolutely slammed with projects and commitments and um, running a firm of 45 people. And, you know, I was one busy girl. And the thought of how am I going to make this work seemed impossible. And yet that moment of epiphany, I knew I had to. It wasn't like, oh, that's interesting. It was, you are going to write. That was, that was the feeling. It's it's almost like an intervention <laughs> away from something. An intervention with yourself. Far above where I was at that moment, and I just really, yeah, I have to do this. Well, how long did it take you to get to the point where you owned your identity as a writer, where you're actually doing it from that point where something said, this needs to happen? It wasn't very long. It's surprising. When, you know, um, I use a quote in, in The Not-So-Big Life, which I'm going to inadequately um, characterize here, but basically it says that when you absolutely commit to doing something, the universe moves in all sorts of absolutely miraculous ways to support that commitment. And that is exactly what happened to me. Happened to me. So the commitment happened with that epiphany. It was unequivocal. And so the one thing I did, I didn't do a lot. The one thing I did was to look at my schedule and say, okay, if I have to make time, how do I do that? And the answer was something rather obvious, but at the time it it seemed extreme. But I realized that every time I had a new architectural client, I would give them a project number and I would schedule time into my already very busy schedule and I would say, I'm going to meet with you this period during my week. And so I thought, well, so I will just give myself a new project number and I will pencil myself into my own schedule. 
And it's easy for me to say it, but at the time that I did it, I felt like I was breaking every cardinal rule under the sun. I thought my partners would would fire me and my existing clients would be upset with me because I wouldn't have enough time to serve them. None of that was true. Absolutely none of it. What I did was I slated two hours on Tuesday mornings and Thursday mornings. That was a lot out of my schedule. Oh, I'm sure those four hours just felt like a tremendous amount of time. Unbelievable. But I felt propelled, I mean, literally by something bigger than myself. And the time showed up every week, and I committed to doing it. So I actually stayed home. I didn't go into work those um those for those two hours and I and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote to start with I didn't even know what I was writing and it I I became very much aware it didn't matter that the act of taking that action was what mattered first and then as I wrote something started to take shape it wasn't the the first book that I wrote as it turned out it was the fourth book it started to form into um, what those of you, your listeners who know my house books, will know as Home by Design, which was my fourth book. And it's, it, it, but it, it became really clear to me, this is what I want to write. And then I, uh, through a number of circumstances, reconnected with the people at um, Fine Home Building. And their, their publisher is, their, their publishing house is called Taunton Press. And so I contacted Taunton Press and told them I had a book that I would like to write, and I sent in my manuscript. And uh, the publisher wrote back and, and said, this is a very interesting book, but it's one that where you need to develop your readers first. You need to have them sort of meet where you are in this book. And so we want you to write a simpler book, and we would suggest that you write a book called The Small House Book. And when I listened to that title, I thought, that is not the right title. I know what I want to be able to do is write for the people that are building bigger houses that are really empty of character. And I want them to understand that if you build less square footage, but you make it beautiful and you tailor it to the way you really live, then you're going to have a really great house. So build it not so big and make it better, and it will be fantastic. So that was where the title of Not So Big came from. As I started to just really literally write to myself, what is it that I want to write? I was just writing this introduction to this book that I knew wasn't really going to be called The Small House Book, but something like it. And I wrote at the end of that description to myself, in fact, this shouldn't be called The Small House Book. It should be The Not So Big House. And I thought, that's it. It came right out of my pen onto the paper. And that moment changed my life. Not so big compared to what, though? It wasn't, you know, it was just, it was just being there spontaneously in the moment. And that, you know, it's now a brand. It's, you know, it's become so much a part of my life. I didn't try. I just let go into this inquiry into what is it that I want to write? And I think that's an incredible lesson for people listening we have this idea that we've got to think it out, and it doesn't work that way. It comes from letting go. So I, well, I'm curious, though, about 
not so big life. And of course,、mm-hmm. by saying not so big, it's not so big compared、yeah. to what or relative to what. <laughs> and I know,、That's、I mean,、right. if you look online, like I go to Wikipedia and I look, and Wikipedia tells me today, as of December 2016, that you were. A founder, the founder of the Small House Movement, which a lot of people these days would perhaps be more familiar with as the Tiny House Movement. Now,、right. I know that you don't advocate building a 55 foot square house and everybody living in one of those. Maybe there's right, a time、right. in your life to do that, and that's fine. It gives you an appropriate context, and perhaps we'll talk、yeah. about more of living in a really small space and what. That can do for you、right. for the rest of your life,、sure. um, but、right. not so big compared to what? Like, what were you trying to persuade people to think about、yeah. differently? Well, and I have to tell you, just based on your your last comment, I did not invent the tiny house movement or even the small house movement. But because of the title, not so big, and because that those words have become sort of a part of the language in a way, I have. Those things have been attributed to me,、mm-hmm. which is kind of an interesting role to play. You know, to start with, I, I just kept trying to, you know, correct the picture, and then I realized, no, these these groups have really been inspired by my books. But interestingly, when I say not so big, I do not necessarily mean small. I mean less square footage than you thought you needed, so that. You can make it the way you really want, not the way that the real estate market tells you you need, not the way that your mother-in-law says you need, but the way that you really want, based on what you have the financial capacity for. And so it's so not so big. The way I describe it can be many, many different sizes. That depends upon the person's economic、uh, capacities and their their needs and their loves. So, this so small is a subset of what I'm describing, and so that's a kind of an intriguing issue. But I do think a lot about small, and I do write about small. And how you know, I got inspired by、um, going on a sailing trip in a, a, a sailboat when I was 21, and it was beautifully appointed. It was one of those really, really lovely、um, boats, and Everything had a place. Everything was thought through so that it it was, you know, it was designed for its environment, and it was designed to really care for the needs of its occupants. And I thought, as I was on that boat, wouldn't it be wonderful if we designed our houses with that much care? Just think how, you know, if you focus on the detail and the quality, you don't need nearly the amount of quantity. And so that really was the inspiration for a lot of the thinking behind the not so big house.、Mm-hmm. Well, I would imagine a sailboat is more about function than it is about form or pizzazz. I haven't seen too many sailboats. I have to admit that's not really a world that I inhabit and、a、that I know、really、a ton good about. One is both. Is, it's both. Okay. I mean, most most a lot of boats are are mostly function. But what inspired me about this boat was it was both beauty and usefulness. And that that was really my inspiration is that if we can make useful beauty something that inspires us every moment of our day, we're going to have such a different experience in living in that place. And that was really、um, what the not so big house has really come to mean is it's about livability and it's about your own personal expression 
what's beautiful to you, what's meaningful to you. And um, it, and there's, architects have a lot of tools in their toolbox to help you make the house that way. And so I just tried to um, make those ideas more accessible to to everyone. And lo and behold, it really did spread like wildfire. And we've got, I think, quite a bit, lo- quite a large number now of much better designed houses as a result. How do you guide someone through a conversation about useful beauty? How, let's just maybe even in real time where if you want, you don't have to like go through an interview process of a prospective client and say, okay, let's really figure out what it is that you want. I've heard you use the phrase, how can your house reflect you back to yourself and forget about impressing the neighbors and all that other stuff, which you and I don't care about and most people listening don't care about. So this concept (laughs) of useful beauty, how would you help me understand that so that I could actually have that on a day-to-day basis in my home, in my life? Right, right. Well, the the way that you can start is by looking at the things that you have in your current abode, whatever that is, and look at the things that you that really give you pleasure. Um, it could be um, a, a little window seat, where or even like one chair, where you love to sit in the morning and look out at, at you know a. a pretty view, or even it could be even just a light quality, and have a cup of coffee in the morning. As you're thinking about, you know, what are those things in my life that really do sort of elevate my spirit, you can start to gauge what has meaning to you, what what adds a sense of vitality to your life. And they, they're often moments, you know, they're things that you normally wouldn't call it a place. It's It's like a place in time in your day. And if you can identify those, first of all, in your existing house, and then in houses and places that you know from your past, oftentimes a a really good one uh, is to think of your grandparents' house for those people that have uh, memories of a grandparent, you know, with a a special spot in their home. I'm seeing mine right now. Yeah. I mean, they're just sort of archetypal memory. (laughs) And they tie into something very basic, very fundamental that makes us feel at home. And so I try to take my clients through, and my readers too, through a, it's like a visioning and remembering of what places have really moved me. And then there's spatial qualities so there are places you've been over the course of your life where it really struck you this place was magnificent or this place was really cozy or you know and I asked them to think back over the the spots that that they really enjoyed if you if you're older and you've lived in a lot of places you may have those from places that you've lived yourself where there there are you'd love to be able to replicate a a particular corner of a living room or a favorite spot in a bedroom or you know but it's not so much the replication that I'm interested in but what made that special to you and and oftentimes when people go back in their memory it can have to do with a color or a light quality at a particular time of day or um, something that I talk about a lot um, the ceiling height of that space we often are you know we, we I have this picture that I show in my public presentations, and it's also in the not-so-big house, 
of a, a little kid, maybe three or four years old, who's taken up residence in a cardboard box. And so she has this little house that she's made in her cardboard box. She's sitting in it, but she's looking out at the larger world. As adults, we still have that pleasure at being in a, a small, contained, cozy spot from which we can look out at a larger space. But we've forgotten that that's important. Kids are incredibly sensitive to spatial experience. Um, we are too, but we forget. And so it's, it, we can shape our houses, whether we're remodeling or we're building new, or we even just um, you know, bringing in furniture to shape a space that we, um, we don't have the money or the ability to remodel, but we can still make it more interesting uh, for livability. So a lot of what I write about has to do with really connecting people with that memory from their childhoods and then bringing it into today and asking yourself, you know, what is it that I love in this space? You know, am I sensitive to color? Am I sensitive to light? Am I sensitive to shape? And as you start to, um, I actually encourage people to put together a place journal, you know, where you just write down, this place I really loved, this one I really didn't like, and here are the characteristics that I liked, or here are the characteristics that really turned me off in this place. You know, so you can, you're really using what your body is telling you to inform your decisions about where and how you like to live. Well, I know I'm sensitive to ginger cookies, and specifically <laughs> sensitive to them at my grandma's in my kitchen in northern Minnesota uh, at the breakfast nook, the little bench over there, and just having ginger cookies there. I could look out the window into the backyard, and it's a r- kind of a rural area, and just my mind could float and almost be outside, but my taste yeah. buds could just explode inside, and it was yeah. at that spot, that breakfast nook right. in my grandparents' house, You've got it. which... Just, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it right now. Yeah, um, it's a lot of it is sensory. Yeah. You know, we, we, especially in our very, very busy world that most of us live in today, we forget that that's where life happens, you know, where we can actually feel and see and taste and touch. And, you know, it's a whole different experience than racing from one thing to the next. We, we forget that that's important. Well, this kind of gets into your concept of real time, which you talk about in The Not-So-Big Life. And I know you've also, I'll I'll link to, for people who haven't or aren't going to read the book, I'll at least encourage them to watch your TEDx talk that you did a few years back in San Diego, um, where you talk about this concept of real time as well. But just to give people a sense of, um, you, you know, when I'm talking about it, I can see I'm there. I'm with you right here. I'm talking. I'm as present as I can be. But there's a little part of me that just drifted away to northern Minnesota at the (laughs) breakfast nook table and I'm eating a ginger cookie. But that was a distraction for the conversation that I'm trying to have with you right now. So real time, being completely present, what does that mean to you in in your day-to-day? How do you take as much of your actual time and spend it in what you call real time? Right. Well, let's just take a let's um, help your read, your listeners to imagine this for a second. So, wherever you are that you're listening, I want you to take a pause and just look around you and see where you're sitting or standing or walking. Just 
tune into what's actually happening in you and around you right this moment. So as I've asked you to do that, you're much closer to real time, which is what's happening right now. And so our our sensory apparatus expands into that space that we just made in terms of the pause. And we start to see and experience so much more that we're normally completely unaware of because our minds are racing we're thinking about what we've got to do next. We're doing all this, doing, 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 basically. And we're forgetting that we're actually human beings rather than human doings. And so when you can just pause and really show up in the moment you're in rather than all the thinking we're doing about the past or the future or what's got to happen next or how embarrassed we are about what we just did or whatever, hmm. we, we're actually here when we allow those pauses. And you can actually live your whole life in that moment of now. Uh, we, we, you know, we hear, be here now, and um, some of your listeners will have read uh, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. And there's many, many ways that we refer to now, but most people think they understand, but they're thinking they're not actually here. <laughs> so re- real, what I call real time is actually showing up right here, right now, and experiencing what's happening now. So, you know, you'd mentioned a moment ago that your memory back into the gingerbread cookies, <laughs> in the uh, ginger cookies in the, the kitchen was not now. But I would argue, no, that was absolutely now, because you were, yes, in memory, but you were with me. I had asked you to remember, and you were there. Hmm. So it was absolutely what was happening now. That was what was happening now for you. That was your real experience. So it's not, we have a misunderstanding about real if you're completely engaged in your experiencing, you're here. You are present. It doesn't mean it's all what we would call spiritual. <laughs> it doesn't mean that it's always lovely and sweet. You can be present in really very difficult experiencing. But when you're 100% there experiencing it, you experience it and then it's done. Problems arise when we get our heads involved and think, I shouldn't have done that, or, oh my goodness, you know, how can somebody have done that to me? Or I mean, that's all not present. That's the thinking mind assuming that it's running the show, and it's not. But what's happening is truly happening, and you can be in it completely. It's fun to be in real time with you, Sarah. I just need <laughs> to say that. <laughs> I'm enjoying it thoroughly. 
another thing that you mentioned the pause and pause a couple of times too. And when you first started talking and, and encouraging people who are listening to stop, to pause, to feel the sensations, to look around, I thought you were about to do a guided meditation with us before. And I, and I was thinking, Oh, this is great. Like an impromptu guided meditation. And with your comments (laughs) and the pause, I was thinking of a a friend of mine, a guy named Christopher Carter over at this epic life.com. And he did a series of guided meditations called the pause awesome they're on itunes they're on other places i'll link to them in the show notes if people want to see them a little bit more but when it comes to taking the pause how does that show up in your life what do you do to habitually or ritually hit the pause button daily weekly annually what what kind of things do you have you incorporate in your life to do that well i'll talk about the the short-term ones first and this sounds a little wacky but believe me it will change your life if you really do it and that is to um, set your smartphone to vibrate every 90 minutes, just for a moment. To it, it builds in a, a a pause into your life. What you do, you'll the the buzz will go off. And what I want you to do is just stop for 10 seconds, even five seconds, and do just what we did earlier, and just. Take a look. What am I experiencing right now? What's happening? What do I feel? I call this exercise, what is now? What are the smells that are around me? What is the sensation of my skin? Just what am I experiencing? And you'll be amazed. This little exercise will bring you back to right now over and over again. You can... You can do it more frequently, but it's very interesting. We get conditioned so quickly to um, tune out extraneous things, and that pause will become an extraneous thing if you make it too frequent. So actually, in The Not-So-Big Life, I talk about doing it every 15 minutes. And what I've learned from practice is that if I put my um, little buzzer on for every 15 minutes, by the fourth or fifth time that it goes off, I've tuned it out. I don't even notice it goes on. So you have to kind of outwit your uh, uh, the, the ability that we have as human beings to be completely conditioned mm-hmm. very quickly. Um, and it seems like that 90-minute gauge, it becomes a surprise because you've forgotten that it's going to go off. And so it, it just reminds you. But um, play with it. All you're looking for is something that will remind you to wake up, basically, within your everyday life for just a few seconds. All right. And uh, it's powerful. It's really powerful. So we have what is now. That's something that we can do on a daily basis. That's right. Um, Do you have other kinds of events, um, social engagements that you have, which bring you back to that mindful, you know, let's just take a giant pause here, everyone. Right, right, right. Well, I'm going to go to the other end of the spectrum for a second, and I'll tell you that every year I do something called um, the year-end review, which is when I take, a. it's usually, I try to devote somewhere between 12 and 20 hours to this process, and I'll usually do it between Christmas and New Year's. And I just sit down with myself and look at all the things that have happened over the course of the year. 
And for those people who've got a copy of The Not-So-Big Life, um, in Chapter 11 of that um, book, I talk about this process. And I have a whole slew of questions to ask yourself to just review what's happened over the course of the year. And there's a lot that happens in a year. Mm -hmm. But we tend to forget it. And so, as you probably know from having read The Not-So-Big Life, I also provide clues throughout the book for how to keep track of what happens to you. The things that I know I tune out and everybody does is um, things like synchronicities that happen. Um, in the moment, you can be absolutely astonished that something has happened. So I have provided a, a way of thinking about these things so that you can write them down and remember them. And then when we come to your year-end review at the end of the year, you can look back over these things. What happens always for me is I am blown away by how much amazing stuff has happened. <laughs> you know, things that you just, you, you can sort of see a pattern of how you're growing, how you're learning over the course of your life when you start to pay attention. What are one of the questions from the year-end review that you feel like we should be asking ourselves more than annually, maybe monthly, maybe weekly, maybe even daily? If you ask some, some things too frequently, you're going to not notice. In other words, it's like that that pause. The condition patterns you're you're talking yes, about. And exactly. You're yeah, you're but really I, big at frequency and spacing. Perhaps this is your architect brain at work here. Yeah. Um, which I like. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Okay. It, it, it's so easy to fall asleep thinking you're learning. That's really what I know it's it's an enormously powerful pattern in human nature. And so you have to keep yourself on your toes. And and a lot about the not-so-big life is really how do you do that? How do you keep yourself aware within your everyday life? Um, so the things that, that I would ask myself maybe once a month are, you could ask something as, as general as what's changed over the course of this month? You know, and, and so you'll start to, notice, I mean, sometimes big things happen, like a pet dies, or a friend moves away, or a good friend of yours um, gets a divorce, and it has an impact on your life, or, you know, the, those kinds of big events. But then you can also pay attention to the smaller things, like, um, I'll tell you one that, that, that colored my experience, um, just watching a um, a TV series that really powerfully impacted me and then watching how that affected my dreams, how it affected the things I was noticing about my life and how I felt when the series was over. You know, stuff like that, which is rather simple. I mean, we think of it's just a TV series, isn't mm -hmm. it? But no, if you start to really pay attention to everything, I have a, 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 a phrase from the book that I... I think really encapsulates it. So if you look with the eyes of a student, everything can teach you. So that's, that's what I try to do with my own life. Nothing is mundane, ultimately. It is all here to show you to you. But you've got to learn how to look. You've got to learn how to see that the stuff that's happening in your life isn't happening to you, it's happening for you. Mm -hmm. A whole, whole different way of looking. And once you get that, 
you're on a bullet train to self-understanding. Yeah, this process of self-inquiry, that's just, mm-hmm. you've integrated so deeply into your life. It's really fascinating to hear more about. Do you have any new big questions that you're asking yourself or others right now that surprise you? There's one, it's not new to me, but it will be new probably to most of the people listening. Um, When we say I, we think we're talking about a singular person, me. But if you pay attention, you can actually start to ask yourself, so which me is speaking right now? Because we have literally probably a dozen different characters within this one thing that we call I. So there's, I'll, I'll just use some examples from, from uh, people that I know from my own life. Um, there's a me, for example, that sounds exactly like my mother. And I can feel when I speak <laughs> that, oh, those are my mother's beliefs and my mother's values. And I can just, and there's a kind of tenor that she speaks with. And I can feel, okay, well, that's the, me that's like my mom. Oftentimes people have a really self-judgmental part, a me that can't be satisfied with anything that, that you do. Mm-hmm. That's a different me than the one that's really self-congratulatory and really proud of themselves when they accomplish something. You know, so we have all these different characters. And so I ask my um, you know, not-so-big-life students to look at, so which me is speaking right now when you say I? That's a really powerful tool to start to see that you are not just one singular constant expression. You change a lot over the course of one day. Would that freak some people out, though, if they realize that there's 20 (laughs) different versions of themselves, each with a different... I I think it helps people because... We think of ourselves as consistent, but yet we, when we stop and really pay attention, you see you're not nearly as consistent as you think. But then we fault ourselves. We're trying to make things consistent. And nobody is consistent. It's not, this is, this is human nature. Yeah, you'd have to be a robot to be consistent. Yes, exactly. That's right. We're run by many, many different programs. And so to pay attention to what cues up which part of which program can be immensely helpful because then you can actually do something different. You know, if you always find yourself getting into a fight when somebody says something, you know, that has a particular flavor to it or even a tone of voice, you know, a lot of people get triggered by a tone of voice. It doesn't matter what the person is saying. If you can start to recognize, oh, this me gets cued up with that tone of voice, then once you're aware of it, you can start to act differently because you've brought awareness to it. You can go, okay, I don't need to respond that way. This is just my reaction to a particular tone of voice. That's huge. Mm-hmm. That can change your life. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's the awareness that's the key. I'm sure you could tell us a lot of other things that would change our life <laughs> or get us to ask some big, big questions, uh, but uh, which probably wrap this up with one question of my own, which I enjoy asking everyone. And is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like people to know? Um, The one thing I hear this from a lot of my students when I do um, 
workshops, it's that they have often thought, well, I don't think I can do this. I mean, you, you know, I often hear people say, well, you're an author, you know, you can do this stuff. And what I would tell everybody is, you can do whatever you want, truly. But what gets in the way are those conditioned patterns that tell us you can't. You know, uh, a favorite Minnesotan one is, uh, you know, don't rise above your station. You don't want to be, you don't want to stand out from the crowd. Oh, you know? uh, yes. Listen to that programming. That's going to stop so much of your natural expression. And so a lot that I both speak and write about these days has to do with how to recognize the pattern. You can't get rid of the pattern, but when you recognize it, you then have the choice to do something different and push through Go as I put it, go towards that which you normally reject. I'm not talking about dangerous stuff here. I'm just talking about the things that you say, oh, I couldn't do that. Try it. If you're telling yourself you can't, that's what you need to try because that is actually the door to everything you really want. Okay. There's, a, there's a quote going around, and I did not invent it, that says, everything you want is on the other side of fear. So if you go towards that thing that you fear, you'll discover that their your dreams can come start coming true. Well, what if <laughs> what I want right now is to explore your words a whole lot more, whether they're videos or workshops or yeah. your books, where would you like people to go to find more of you? Well, if you go to uh, notsobig.com you'll find there uh, two portals, one that will take you to the not so big house uh, site and one that will take you to the not so big life site. And depending upon which of those topics interests you more, there's material there. Um, my books are on both um, both pages, uh, both uh, sites, so you'll be able to find them there. And um, I would encourage people who are interested in this to to read if you're interested in the house material, I'd probably start with the not-so-big house. And if you're interested in the life material, start with the not-so-big life. And and especially with the not-so-big life, take it slowly. You don't need to speed read this book. It's it's something that will work on you gradually. There's also an audio book, incidentally. So, um, you know, you, any of those options will help you to start to think about house and life in a completely different way. Mm. I will link to all those things in the show notes to make it easy on people as well. Sarah, thank you for a tremendous conversation and for putting some new questions in my mind that I will be asking <laughs> myself for a long time to come. You're very welcome. Great to talk to you, Joel. Thanks so much. All right. How about that Sarah Susanka, eh? Yeah. If you want an architect to help you design your home or your life, she may be the one. So uh, moosey on along to all the stuff we spoke about, links, topic timestamps, takeaways, more nifty stuff in the show notes. Those are at joelzeslowski.com slash S-A-S-M-117. You'll also see information in the show notes about how to support me, the show, and our community at joelzeslowski.com slash support.
It would be pretty neato to be able to give you a shout out when I return from my podcasting break for some nice words you said in the interim, whether that's on iTunes, um, maybe I could give you some kudos for your patronage on Patreon or PayPal, even a quick little, hey, uh, hey, Joel, yeah, I've been a podcast lurker for a while now, and I want you to know I exist, and I think you're swell. Those kind of notes, they just melt my heart. For now, it's time to get my putty tribe fully on for a while and help out hundreds of multi-potentialites around the world connect, support, and rock on together. Again, I plan to be back sometime in April 2017, and there are 116 episodes in the show archives to explore or listen to again if you're looking for more sweet, sassy molassy while I'm taking my break. I invite you to give me plenty of reasons to miss you while I'm gone, and thank you in advance for your understanding, support, and general niftiness. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslavsky. Now go simplify something. Hug someone or get your sexy spreadsheet on.